0: Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release rare interviews that need to be heard. In this episode, we have Guns N' Roses frontman Axel Rose. At the time of this interview in 1987, Rose was 25 years old and was promoting an upcoming tour of Japan. Appetite for Destruction hadn't even cracked the top-selling 50 albums and it would be at least another seven months before the band really took off. In the interview, Rose talks about growing up in Indiana, the making of Appetite for Destruction, whether he murdered a dog, and which band is the biggest sellout. The interview is conducted by Steve Harris. To learn more about Steve, who is new to the tapes archive team please check out our podcast only interview with them which is out now one last thing before we get to the interview the tapes archive podcast is a proud member of osiris media a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love thanks for tuning in and now it's time to open the vault
1: yes i'd like uh, room 207 please 207 yes one moment okay hello uh, hello, uh, my name is Steve Harris, I'm calling, uh, from- Oh, J- from Japan. Yes.
2: What's happening, guy? Uh, hi, Axel. Hold on, let me get a cigarette. Okay. What's happening?
1: We were kind of a little bit worried that, you know, in the middle of your big victory return there, you'd be, uh, out partying instead of waiting at the hotel for the phone call.
2: No, I'm setting up the party to come over to me right now. I just got in yesterday, cause I went, I'm from Indiana, and I had been there in about two or three years, and I went back to visit my family and my friends,
1: Why did you decide to fit that right in before the homecoming there?
2: Well, just because it was like I hadn't been back in two years. And the last time I was back there, I just told myself, I'm not coming back until I get a record out. Because too many people keep trying to say, oh, you'll never get anywhere and crap like that. I finally said, okay, I got three days. I can go back and just see what it's like. It was great.
1: Had you always been known as a town rock and roller back then? A bit, yeah, a bit. But you have to remember that in
2: Indiana, people are real opinionated and biased and things like that so I have a real open mind and I listen to a lot of material by listening to a lot of material you listen to the Rolling Stones within your bag or people think like that back there you know call you all kinds of different names depending on what you listen to and since I listen to everything I was called everything in the book all at once
1: things were still that way when you, even when you were growing up but you're not that old
2: like uh, 25 I'll be 26 in February
1: so only, even 10 years ago people uh, were still thinking like that huh
2: Oh, yeah. Well, Indiana is really closed off from the rest of the world. Maybe not Chicago so much, but even Chicago a bit, you know, isn't... It's a huge city, but it's not like L.A. or New York or in Texas or Florida. The Midwest likes to just keep itself to itself, and everybody else has a problem. That's how they look at it, you know. It's like they don't venture out to the world where people from Texas... They go to LA or they go to New York on vacations and stuff. But it's not like that whole in the Midwest. People don't get out too much.
1: Well, what do you have to listen to to be considered normal there?
2: Well, it used to be Leonard Skinner, Aerosmith, which I was amazed at Aerosmith because Tyler wore makeup. But for some reason, it was okay for Tyler, but not okay for Mick. It's kind of weird. But like it was a certain group of kids, you know, and a certain group of people. And they, they grew in numbers, and they had a big influence on me
1: you think that that sort of conservatism led you in the direction you were to go in? Was it sort of a
2: backlash? Yeah, but I've drawn from the conservatism itself. I've found places where I can could be considered a conservative. I've, I've drawn from both sides. I always work at trying to put things back together. What I say back together is people will have an opinion. And so immediately before they've even met,
1: When did you decide that you were going to bust out a mold? Well, you're being his son. You must uh, surely understand your rebellious spirit because I'm sure that uh, exists in him as well.
2: Yeah, I was telling a friend just recently that still has hard feelings against my father. I was telling him, I was going, yeah, well, one reason dad was so hard on me was because he didn't know that I was following the things he taught me to do, to go for your dreams and things. He thought I was messing up. He didn't know. Bart, come here. It's my dog I haven't seen in four months. <laughs> <laughs> the famous dog they say I go murdering.
1: I don't want to break up a tearful reunion. They said you were murdering, murdering your dog in England?
2: Now he remembers. Now he's jumping around, losing his mind.
1: <laughs> okay, so what's happened? Yeah, you were talking about how they, they said you uh, murdered your dog in England. What's the story behind that?
2: I don't like poodles, and I told some guy that everything about poodles makes me want to kill him. So next thing you know, there's this magazine in England talks about this band in L.A. where this guy's a self-confessed poodle murderer. <laughs> So then they have, like, the National Enquirer type papers over there, and mm-hmm. all those things came out calling me a dog butcherer and that were beastier than the Beastie Boys.
1: Is that rather representative of the type of treatment you received by the British press?
2: Oh, well, it worked out good and bad, you know, but it was kind of fun as long as... But now, you know, there's things in magazines here, Hit Parader, where they've, now they've they got quotes of Slash saying, I run over dogs, and he never said that. Yeah. Torque is like, I, I found out we had this little dog, right? And I got him when he was just... Really, really little. My father was explaining how he imprinted off me, you know, because he never imprinted off other dogs and things. So he thinks he's a person, and and all the rockers like like him around. It's funny that everybody hates little dogs, but this dog is like a party dog. It's funny.
1: He's your Spuds McKenzie. Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: Spuds is a girl and has had puppies. <laughs> That's a big lie. <laughs> Getting back to England here,
1: your your success there was rather phenomenal. As a matter of fact, among. Uh, wave of L.A. bands, that perhaps you stand out as the most successful band in England, having done, I guess you started the marquee and went to uh, Hammersmith Odeon uh, rather Uh quickly. What's behind the success there? What do you think is uh, making you go over in England, whereas uh, they turn a cold shoulder to everybody else from L.A.?
2: Well, you know, I think it's kind of like if you think back in the 70s and stuff, a lot of things like Hendrix went over to England to break and a lot of real blues bands, hard rocking blues bands have gone to England to break or been from England. Not into a lot of the new bands. They like them. They're okay because that's a, that's what there is out there. But they think it's a lot. Of prete- they think it's real pretentious. And they thought we were the same way. But then we went over there and showed we weren't. And they like that. And they just start catching on.
1: Was the crowd reaction quite a bit different from in the states?
2: In the states, like we hadn't toured in the states, so we'd only been an LA band. And the LA crowds have seen everything because they go to the shows every weekend or every almost every night. And so they don't get as rowdy over here at least in L.A. so much, and at least in the club scene, now that we're doing bigger places, then you get a lot of people that never seen you before and they're, they're rowdy, but you know, the, the rock crowd, I mean, they were around when Molly Crew and Wasp were starting, so they've seen everything. It, it doesn't bother you that they don't get as rowdy because if they're there, they like it. The, the reactions in England were different compared to the places we played. The one place Bristol Colton Hall was full of slammers and stage divers and people jumping off the balconies, jumping off amplifiers. We did a show in Manchester, The people just stood there. They all stood up the whole time, right? And some of them, they sang the songs and stuff, but not as much as other places. And we were having so much problem with feedback on stage. I didn't know that the people in the crowd weren't hearing it through the main PA. It was just our monitor system. And so we came back and did one song encore and we left. We went up to our room, didn't think they liked us, right? Well, then about 15 minutes later, they started screaming. We didn't know it because we were like three stories up in this room. The security was keeping everybody away from us. And then the reviews from the show we we're the world's greatest band, <laughs> you know, it was very surprising. We thought they hated us, but basically they were kind of mesmerized and didn't know how to react.
1: With that experience under your belt now, uh, do you think you'd approach, like say, a future world tour differently? I mean, uh, what, what did you learn from the uh, experience? Well, we
2: learned, we, we gained a lot more confidence in working the stage and dealing with crowds. And then, you know, then we came back and we did a club tour of New York, Playing New York was a lot like playing L.A. You know, we had to win those people over. And then we went out with Motley, and that was pretty insane. Any night that we did two nights in a row, the first night, you know, we'd get them going. But if we did two nights in a row, when we came back for the second night, they were like, whoa, now we know who these guys are. The first time people see us, a lot of times, unless they're really heard us and been really into us, they're more into watching and checking us out, you know, and watching every little thing. Like by the time you do a second night, They'd lose their minds. They were like, yeah, now I can let myself go. It's cool to act like I like these guys. We're really into being very real. It's not an act. It's not like a skit we put together the night before because we think the kids will like it. It's something we want to do. We don't quite pre-plan things except kind of the song list. And I always kind of play that by Word, he, did, he did great. I told the crowd I go, Not bad for guys never played this song before, huh? And they went screaming.
1: Well it sounds like your shows are, are quite a workout for you guys as well. You find it's rather draining?
2: Oh well, yeah. I mean it's like but I spend most of my time just making sure I'm ready to go on stage. How
1: do you stay you fit know? for the show?
2: I get lots of rest, I drink lots of water. For me personally, it's like I'd like to party as much as the other guys.
1: You said this this tour of England was basically the first one outside of LA, right? You think you you're ready for the long haul, though? Oh
2: yeah, yeah, we we came back. To- You guys are
1: working at a, at, a, at a remarkable pace right now. Who's responsible for uh, putting the schedule together so tightly?
2: We work with a guy named Bill Elson and his secretary, Shelley Shaw, from ICM. It's our agency. And then our manager, Alan Niven, and our drive. Because we do not like to sit on our ass because then we just get into drugs and, and trouble because we get so bored. So this keeps us moving.
1: These people are pretty much uh, experienced, I guess, in the field, and they, they know how to set up an up-and-coming band and, and put you on the right course. Yeah, and also
2: we have an idea of what we want to do and what would be good for us, too. We have full say-so and all that. Who we'll, who we'll tour with, who we won't tour with. You know. There's been people we've turned down already, which I won't get into. You have, have you had like
1: any, say, mentors, or people you want to inspire to become like?
2: Well, there was people that were our favorite bands. I figured touring with Motley Crue would be a great learning experience. That would be exciting. Alice Cooper it's funny we'd leave Alice Cooper on stage and go back go backstage and get our showers and have an old Alice Cooper taped in, in the deck playing not because we were on tour with Alice Cooper it's because it's stuff we listen to and then I go wait a minute man will shut the tape off we'll go out and watch it live for the first time in our
1: lives <laughs> it's kind of funny that you mentioned Motley Crue uh, because actually the magazine I'm doing this interview for one of the reasons they wanted to do this interview is so they could sort of clear up a misunderstanding here you seem to be compared a lot to bands like Motley Crue. However, this guy from the magazine who put together the questions here, he seems to think that there's a little something deeper going on than just kind of the showbiz flash of of Motley Crue.
2: Is that a valid option? they have a more theatrical thing, which for its own aspects and the way it's done, they work very hard at it, and I have to respect those things. They have their own beliefs and way of doing things. They're Motley Crue. We're Guns N' Roses.
1: you guys basically aren't into any sort of posturing or, or creating images that don't really re- reflect your uh, your actual lifestyle, huh? No, not at
2: all. It's us. People go, oh, actually, why isn't your hair up? Well, I can't do my own hair worth of crap, and I can't afford to have <laughs> someone sitting there doing my hair every day. Plus, maybe I'd like to keep my hair, and if I did it every day, maybe it'll fall out, and I don't want that to happen. So it's like, if I feel like putting my hair up, I do it. If I don't, I don't.
1: The album Appetite for Destruction seemed to be pretty much straight ahead guns and roses, no flashy producer or or no artifice by computer or or trickery or anything. What exactly did you
2: have in mind? Was this a sort of a live approach? It was done live. The drums, the rhythm guitar and the bass are all live in the same room. So there's bleeding of the instruments into each other's mics and things like that just to get the most energy and a good live feel to the song. It was very hard to find someone to produce the record because some of the main producers of our favorite materials
1: these ideas just burning in your mind, and then when you tried them in the studio, you found they worked. Uh, you didn't come, ac- come up against any brick walls or anything, huh?
2: In some places, you had ideas burning in your mind. In other places, you didn't know what to do in that part, but you heard this part, and then right when you heard it, you thought, yeah, and this part would work in there too, and what if I did this? Now I'll try this one, and see if that works. And a lot of times you had things that worked, sometimes you had things that didn't. You just decide what was best at the moment, what felt right, and what sounded good, and take a tape home,
1: If you could go back again, do you think you'd change anything at all? you were under the gun was a sort of a blessing in disguise.
2: Yeah, in some ways it was, yeah,
1: definitely. You talked about having certain producers in mind, uh, ones that you liked from the 70s. Who exactly were you referring to?
2: I can say that I don't, anybody that I'm naming, I don't know that they were burnt out or whatever, okay? Because I've never met any of these people. Well, first off, you get interested in my lag, but he wants a million dollars, <laughs> right. you know, and, and he's busy anyway. Roy Thomas is supposed to be just kind of a psycho, I'm really looking forward to meeting him because of that. The guy who did, uh, did all the early arrows and stuff, the name's escaping me right now.
3: But that guy was, in, was was one of them. There were different people. It was just, it's hard to find people. You come up with a name on a record, the name would get tossed out
2: within the first 10 minutes of discussion or something. We flew in Manny from Nazareth. He was, he was a very great guy and we loved Nazareth, but he was kind of like in a different sphere than us at the time. So it didn't quite work. It wasn't like a bad problem. It was just like it just, quite feel right you know we talked with Paul Stanley for about five minutes and he wanted to rewrite Jungle and something else so that was the end of the conversation you know? <laughs> and now he's going around saying he was going to produce the record but these guys were too crazy this and that no there was no chance of him producing the record we talked to him once and he said, we did some stuff with Spencer Proper who did the second Wasp tape was recorded in his studio it seems
1: like you had a pretty concrete idea of what you wanted to commit to vinyl then which is uh...
2: oh yeah oh yeah I mean I've been in all kinds of different bands in LA some of them exist now some don't where we've been going to go into the studio and then right then I've quit because I wouldn't allow myself to be on record and have it been from out that way yeah I have a real strong idea of what I wanted to show people musically I've never let up on it just for the sake of to sleep. You can hear it's so easy to go, this is a crazy song. Yeah, it is, but it's also art to me. And I have a wide spectrum of art. A beautiful ballad with full symphony where someone would call art. is just as much art as it's so easy to me. And I believe in art first. Do you know of any bands that you
1: think have been like held back because you know they're really good bands, but they're being uh, rather limited on vinyl?
2: It's hard to say sometimes because it depends on who's doing the limiting. Is the band allowing someone to tell them what to do? Okay, well, you could go, well, in their contract, it said they had to do that. Well, then, who was weak? They're the ones that signed the contract that was limiting them. Sometimes people talk about money, success, as being the success. That's second. That's being lucky, and the people are being generous to you by buying your album. That's successful on its own terms. The success to me is, is like you do a painting, and did you get... It might not have been what you wanted, because when you think of a painting in your mind, sometimes what comes out on shadow of what you thought of but still is it something that you're proud of if you can get that and you're really proud of it no matter what anybody says whether someone offers you a dollar or ten thousand dollars for that painting if you're proud of it that's to me what counts that's what we strive for being extremely particular about your own sound and whatnot i'm sure
1: it, it's rather vexing to always be mentioned in the same breath such as poison or faster pussycat which all seem to be part of the, the la blood of, of glam bands
2: I don't care
1: what he plays. As long as he gets that money to pay off that debt, that could happen. I don't know. You think it's easy to get caught in that kind of nonsense in, in the music business? Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, people get their standards of how they want to live, and so they're willing to do anything to you know, keep up those standards. I'm not so much that way. Not about everything, especially not
1: about my art. How many years have you been knocking around LA before you really felt that you had the lineup you needed?
2: I've been out here.
1: just sort of knew when the right guys got together that it was gonna work out or did you have to
2: polish it up after you well we finally knew
1: chart action been for the album excuse my ignorance
2: no it's been going up and down between 60 and 50 for the last month and a half it's doing okay with very limited radio play and limited
1: limited radio exposure and video exposure because you're a new band or uh, does it have to do with the music as well? Have sort of a different approach to rock and roll than Americans do, so maybe they get off on that kind of stuff. Uh, I
2: don't
1: know. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it baffles. I think it's a, a scam to get success, to be rock stars. Maybe they're happy being rock stars, but I don't think they're going to sit down in a year from now and go, God, I'm so proud of myself for writing that song, Cherokee or whatever, or Ninjas and stuff. It's like, Joe, what do they know about being a ninja? Nothing. I suppose that even if your record had stiffed, I mean, it, considering you're a new band, it's done quite well uh, from, from what you say about the, the, the chart action there. But what what if it had stiffed? Do you think you guys would be
2: taking a different approach now? No, we just would have been a little bit scared about how we're going to survive. I believe in myself and I believe in my songs and you know, I think that you know, we'll get there some way. But it's like this, it's like the album Clean 2 wasn't a very successful album for Queen in the States, but I think it's the best recorded album in the history of rock and roll. I think it's up there with the wall and physical graffiti and stuff like that. So it comes down to an art thing. I'm very, very serious about doing something I believe in, at least at the moment. And if, it, if I've changed my opinion about something I said in a song, well, as time goes by, that's okay, because that song is a reflection of where I was then. Like, it's so easy, I keep going back to that song, but it says I drink and drive everything so all right, well, there was a time when we were a little bit careless and thought we were real cool and, and we got away with it. It's not something we do now, or at least try not to. It's not something I would do. Gotta watch Slash though. Gotta watch what? Got, I have to watch Slash though. Oh, what do you mean? What's... Well,
1: you learn along the way is this basically a a lifetime commitment you think
2: Um, as far as i see it like say we get in Trying
1: to. Do you think you're kind of the spiritual head of the band there? Do you sort of hold things together morally, you think?
2: With a direction, yeah. Uh-huh. With a direction and with my real strong beliefs and faith in, in what we do as artists. Yeah, I'd say so.
1: Have you ever had to like really argue with the guys to kind of get them to go in your own direction? I'll give you an
2: example about that. In, uh, when we were practicing in a one-room studio and I was standing outside because there was no PA and so I could stood outside to listen real clearly in the parking lot and I heard Night Train and Rocky Queen and My Michelle and stuff coming together for the first time in a rehearsal, right? And these guys were all on that day. They were they were on top of it. I was like, my eyes were like watering. I had chills and I was like, oh, we finally got the songs I've been looking for. And Izzy told me like after the rehearsal, he goes, goes, man, now I see what the fuck you've been talking about for the last three years. It's hard to convince someone. They don't know what they have inside. I'm a, I'm a real real good at seeing a person's potential. Sometimes so much so that it causes me problems because I see the potential in this person and I put so much belief in them, but they don't have the guts to dig for what I see inside of them. You know, so sometimes that's been problems. But other times, like Izzy, I was always pushing him with songs because I knew it was there. And now he's really glad I did. And it worked out good for the both of us. So now we don't argue so much about material because of the fact that we now have everybody has a good respect for each other and those guys are you know and those guys have a lot more respect for my directions and stuff so it works out pretty good we don't really fight about material we fight about things like all right who made all the
3: stage
1: of your career when are you the happiest
2: I'm the happiest when I
1: the most frustrated or angered being you know what you are that's
2: when I'm getting limited by a, like a radio station that plays Welcome to the Jungle as a joke because they've got all these papers and everything sent on it they play it as a joke a top 40 station all of a sudden where the number one request. so then they decide definitely not to play it that makes me mad that frustrates me people are scared of that they're going to open up a can of worms. And what really frustrates me is the fact that fucking radio is basically run by advertising dollars. And they're talking money again. We're not talking art. We're not talking music. We're talking, what kind of music can we play that we can get this guy to put his commercials on our radio station so we can make lots of money? To me, then, then you have no business being in radio. Get, a, get the fuck out. Go home. Get a, if you want a job like that, then work in a factory or something. Get the fuck out of this and leave leave people that really care about their music alone. Because these people are screwing with my bank account. When I'm being sincere, I got some insincere fuck worried about paying his rent. So he's kissing ass and playing Madonna
3: songs that he hates. And he won't play Guns N' Roses that he loves. That
2: guy's fucking with my bank account. I don't like wimps like that. That makes me mad.
1: Just for the record, that's just because of the obscenity thing that he's avoiding the, the band. No, it's just, it's hard rock, man. Loud guitars, man. Loud guitars are getting away. They think there's going to be a younger audience, so the younger audience is going to buy um, the new Jeep or this kind of microwave oven. You know, this is '87. Has been really the year of uh, the crunch guitars. You
2: know, White Snake,
1: Bon Jovi, Cinderella, uh, Ozzy. Island. I don't call I don't
2: call White Snake crunch guitars. I call White Snake uh, the biggest sellout I've ever. You know, very, very long time.
3: Is that right? What, what makes
2: him a sellout? I'm not knocking. I don't know, man. I mean, making a mellow version of your song to get CHR radio play that's like so syrupy, it'll make you sick. Maybe if that's the way you wrote the song and intended it, that's nice. But just doing it for the sake of getting money kind of makes me nauseous. Now, I'm not talking about the players, especially the players in the new band. Vivian Campbell blows my mind on guitar. I'm just saying I don't enjoy the record. And David Coverdale made a comment to someone I met. Carolina, saying that there would be bands like Motley Crew and Guns N' Roses and stuff that it wasn't for him, and I'm sorry. He hasn't influenced anything I've ever done. I like about two or three songs of the guys. That's about it. I think he's a great singer, but I've never sat around singing David Coverdale songs. I think Slide It In was a much more rocking record than the new one. It took a lot more chances. Let me flip my tape up. Like, you know how we, like, we got our record deal and we got Kevin to agree a lot of things we wanted. We had to do it again. And we have to do it with the whole world. We've just come back after like four and a half months of being on the road now. Okay, and now we're going to get ourselves together, play for the hometown, you know, kick ass as hard as we can with that. And then for the next couple weeks after that, we're going to go in with all our lawyers, the record company, and everything else, and our management, and our, our accounting things. And we're going to go in, it all back together again and see where we stand and what we got to do and move hard fast because all I know is this I don't know what's going to happen or how far we're going to get but by the end of 88 we're going to have done as many things as we possibly fucking could have because man once your record is done after that year of touring yeah it might stick around and whatever but it's done if you didn't do it then man you
1: ain't going to get no fucking second chance do you think you're just gonna to have to take your music to the people via the stage because of the oh, yeah. limitations of
2: seeing Well, a lot, but we're hoping that Sweet Child will have a chance to get through in a lot of ways. You know, we don't know. I think it should. I can see the hassles with Jungle. I can see the hassles with It's So Easy, definitely. I can see the hassles with Paradise City because it's really long, and the verses are a little bit too heavy for a lot of radio stations. But I don't see a problem with Sweet Child. And I didn't write Sweet Child to get it on radio, but I don't see the problem with it doing that. And if it doesn't do it, then someone's just slamming the door on us. If that happens, then we got to figure out another angle. And who knows if we'll be able to do it next year or not.
3: We'll see. I'm not going to not believe that...
1: about semantics but do you object to the labeling of your music as heavy metal?
2: Only because people see that word and- I do a country song. I'm still getting, I mean, the Rolling Stones to me have done the best. I find "A Girl with Faraway Eyes," "Faraway Eyes." That to me, that's the best country song ever written. Rolling Stones wrote whatever kind of music they felt
1: like. Written. They wrote "Miss You's one of the best disco songs ever written. Basically, we're just a rock and roll band playing whatever we feel. It's interesting because you know a lot of the bands you've mentioned, like the Led Zeppelins, Aerosmiths, Queen, Rolling Stones, ACDC, dc all the the bands that kind of spawned a legacy that they're all still alive and kicking. Record, right? exception to that list of bands is led zeppelin
2: he's moved on he hasn't compromised his art i'm talking about robert plant there he hasn't compromised his art he's moved on he's an older guy he doesn't know you know he doesn't agree with some of the things he wrote about before but like you go through life and you make changes i mean pete townsend isn't saying hope i die before i get old now you say things one day and that's how you really feel and you believe it but then maybe you grow past that Robert Plant, it's like, I don't listen to a whole lot of the stuff, but I have a lot of respect for it. I really like the song Big Lawn, but I have a lot of respect for it because he's being himself and he's not compromising. And Jimmy Page is pretty much the same way. Sure, you miss old Led up, but like, when people go back to their high school reunions, and they're standing there talking to some bald, fat guy, and then they don't even realize that was the quarterback of the football team who got all the girls. They miss that, but the guy has changed, and he's, now he's a happy, you know, the guy could be a happy... Whatever family man in Idaho or something. Now you go through changes. I just don't like compromising. That's just just for the sake of being successful. That bothers me. I'd rather starve than have to pay the rent by by bending over and taking the ass. And that's what I, what I consider
1: it. One last thing I want to ask you here that I forgot to ask you before when we were talking about Indiana is, uh, what do you think of uh, John Cougar Mellencamp, who stayed back, of course?
2: One, I like the fact that he has the balls to go back and live in Indiana rather than live where all of the other people in the industry would think he's cool. And he's doing what he wants to do. And he's being true to the people he grew up with. That's real important to me because I have strong friends in Indiana, too. I don't necessarily like the place because there's not a whole lot to do. I like some of the scenery. There's not a whole lot to do there, though. And I don't get along with the law there. I get thrown in jail all the time, and usually it's for something I didn't do. So then I have to pay lawyer fees if I get my way out of court. That's happened more than not. The album... Is the album called Scarecrow, the last one? Uh, I think there
1: was, the, that was the one before that.
2: Yeah, uh, that's a phenomenal record. Whether I'm totally into it, you know, it's whether where my head's at all the time. There's different times I can sit down and hear one of those songs and go, yeah. There's other times when John Cougar's the last thing I want to hear. It's not like it's my very, very favorite thing. But it's, he's, he's a good artist.
1: I guess I got what I need to know then. Thanks a lot, of excellent, You know, Well,
2: set- let me say one more thing. Mm-hmm. If this comes out before we get there, man, we're going to tear that place up, man. <laughs> we, are, we are so excited. Me and Izzy have been talking about going to Japan for... The, me and Izzy have been together 13 years. It's been a dream going to Japan and playing the shows in Japan. I mean, our favorite records were Team Trick of Budokan and Unleashed in the East. If You hear these screaming Japanese people. We go, we got to go there. We have to go. Hopefully, yeah. we'll have the people be like that for us. and We'll have fun with... Sure, the kids will go ape shit because they. Yeah, we can find some opium dens <laughs> and learn some. Some Oriental girls can teach us some new things that American girls don't know. And that's right, some exact new positions to take back Oriental, ba- Oriental basket trips and things.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll I'll leave those arrangements to you once you get here.
2: Rock and roller with hard on seeks oriental masseuse definitely definitely (laughs)
1: that's how it is okay right. okay well thanks a lot for your time and sorry to take you away from your pooch there no that's
2: okay okay look look forward look forward to meeting okay we'll we'll see you when you get out here take care okay thanks a lot bye bye
0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember, you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.